Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. Let's retrace the sequence of events surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. One week before Resurrection Sunday, Jesus crested the Mount of Olives. Then he rode a donkey into the city. A mere five days later, he was crucified. Then on Sunday, he arose and met two disciples walking to Emmaus. Seven days later, Jesus appeared to Thomas. A week or two later, he met Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Let's travel through time to the days before and after Jesus' resurrection and relive these events just as they happened in real time. On this precise day, almost exactly 2,000 years ago, what was read happened. Viewpoints, the relativist, there are no absolutes. Are you absolutely sure? The skeptic, we cannot know anything with certainty. Are you quite certain about that? The atheist, there is no God. Really, how do you know that? Have you been everywhere in the universe and beyond? Have you been to every time? Sounds like you would only be able to say there is no God if you had access to omnipotence and omnipresence, which is kind of God. The agnostic says, well, there may be a God, we just can't know him. And are you saying you know that about God? That sounds like you know something about him. <laughs> and then there's the receptivist. He says, I'm open to learning about God. Thomas is the latter. And we're going to look at him today. We don't have to be afraid or intimidated by those who raise questions about the basis for faith in Jesus. We believe the truth. And there, these times when people are asking questions are opportunities to be able to share the truth. According to 1 Peter, he says this, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? For even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. This morning's passage is rich with nuggets that declare ours to be a reasonable faith. 
Now, the passage is fairly well known. It concerns a member of Jesus' inner circle named Thomas. And you can see a picture of him here in this picture of Da Vinci's The Last Supper, which I realize this was not the actual arrangement. They were reclining at dinner, but this is the picture. And I'm going to tell you about something that happened when I was in high school, you know, long ago in a galaxy far away. Our, our church did this, uh, oh, I guess it was kind of a, a theater thing. It was a part of what we, kind of a dinner theater thing that you would do. And basically, they got all of us high schoolers, and we were dressed accordingly to be these 13 people, and we were all frozen in, you know, and then we would have our part, and we'd speak our part, and I was Thomas, and in this picture, you probably don't know it, but Da Vinci has sought to capture the character of each of these people in the picture, and the one to the left of Jesus who is going like this, that's Thomas, and he's got the, you know, he's basically got this, unless I touch something in your side, I'm not going to believe it. So that was it. I was actually Thomas in the, again, I don't, I guess we called it the Last Supper uh, presentation. And I don't remember the whole dialogue, but I had to be like this the whole time until it was my moment. Then I went, I'm Thomas, also known as Didymus, the twin. And then I went on from there. Well, we're going to talk about this guy Thomas, what do we know about him? He's called Didymus, or the twin, because he apparently has a brother or a sister who is a twin. We don't know anything about that person, but we do know that that's the title he was given. He's named in all three lists of the 12. So when there's a listing of all of the 12 disciples, he's there. And in Matthew's list, which is given just before they go out by twos, he is paired with Levi or Matthew, the tax collector. So it's possible that Thomas and Matthew were buds in terms of, you know, making the journey into these different villages to share Christ. Thomas gets a bad rap for the passage that we're going to look at, but he actually took his commitment to the Lord very seriously. For example, in John 11, verses 7 and 8, we read this. Then after this, he, Jesus, said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going to go there again? In other words, this is a really bad idea. And a few verses later, this is what Thomas said. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Now, first off, his vision is 2020. Jesus did go back, and that journey led to the cross, and he was crucified. So Thomas actually had pretty good sense of what was going to happen, but he cares not to live if Jesus is not in his world. Now, he had a poor self-assessment. He said, let's go die too, and he didn't. But he was someone who was, you know, had good vision, and was saying, I'm willing to die for Jesus. Uh, Thomas also shows a characteristic that is a very positive one. Uh, in John 14, 5, uh, Jesus, this is the upper room, and Jesus is sharing with them. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? 
So he's capable of acknowledging what he doesn't know. Uh, Jesus, help me clear up some confusion on my part. And that too is a strength of someone who's able to acknowledge there's something I don't know. Now, we're going to consider this passage that tells us what happened on today, one week after the resurrection. But a few weeks later, we actually discover that Thomas is one of the ones who was with Peter fishing at the Sea of Galilee, and then they came to shore and Jesus had some fish on the grill and they enjoyed a meal together. He's also, a few weeks later, uh, actually 50 days after the resurrection, or 49, he's with the other 10 and 120 on Pentecost. He was baptized and became one of Jesus' inspired witnesses. According to history, he also became a missionary to India. And I don't know whether that's true or not, but I do know that travelers in the 8th and 9th century who came to India discovered Christians who would name Thomas as the one who brought them the gospel. So with that, let's uh, get ready to understand what is in this passage. Now I need to tell you one other thing about something called time-release truth. Jesus sometimes taught the disciples something which they weren't able to make sense of until after his resurrection. For example, he was talking about the temple and rebuilding it. In John 2:22, he says, the scripture says, so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. In other words, Jesus told them something and it wasn't until after his, uh, his resurrection that they connected the dots and said, oh, I remember what he said. In three days, he's going to rebuild the temple, but he's referring to himself. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, John 12, 16 says, these things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So Jesus sometimes told the disciples things that they just couldn't process. And the resurrection that would follow his crucifixion was one of those things. Now we looked last week at what happened on that precise Sunday when he walked with two disciples. Cleopas was one and another whose name we don't know. And Jesus said, it was necessary for me to go to the cross. And then he explained all the scriptures that were pertinent to his death and his, resurrec his resurrection. Well, no one was prepared for what happened when Jesus arose, which tells me for those who would say, well, this was something that the disciples came up with, which is one of the theories by which people debunk the resurrection. You know, they just came up with a plan to pull a scam over the rest of the world. <laughs> I don't see how that's possible. They couldn't have made it up. They were having trouble figuring out what was going on. So let's give the disciples, cut them some slack, including Th Thomas, because they didn't know what was coming. Then we read, but Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, 
and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas is going through a faith crisis. We don't know why Thomas was not with the 10 on resurrection day. But it says they were saying, and it's an imperfect, which means they were saying to him. There was ongoing conversation in the time between last Sunday and this Sunday. Numerous people who had seen him were talking to him. And the evidence included testimony from some women. Uh, Peter, we don't know the exact details, but he appeared personally to Peter. We know a little bit about it. Cleopas and his companion, the other nine, maybe others, but they're all reporting to him, we have seen Jesus. He is alive. And when he says, I will not believe, he actually uses a double negative. In Greek, he says, uh, you know, ume, which is not, not. Basically what he's saying, let me put it in vernacular, I will no way, no how, believe. <laughs> That's a faith crisis. He is absolutely convinced Jesus is dead. Jesus is dead. Which again tells me there's no swoon theory here. <laughs> they are absolutely convinced Jesus died. And let's not be too hard on Thomas. They all saw Jesus die. And if Jesus had not appeared to them in the upper room a week before, all they would remember was in this visceral, can't get it out of my mind way. They saw Jesus die. I've told you about an instance from my history. This was a long time ago, 65 years ago. I'm the only one who watched it, but I watched my brother get run over. And I can still see it. I know right where I was, right where he was. I ran into the house and I said, Mom, Tommy's dead, Tommy's dead. Because that's what I saw and I still see it, I can see it. That's what they saw, and they couldn't get it out of their mind. Jesus provided to the ten, Judas was not there, Thomas was not there, an experience to place alongside the previous one. He was dead, I saw it, but he's alive, I see it. And that's what the ten saw. But Peter did not, I mean, Thomas did not. And he said, no way, no how am I going to embrace this thing that you've all taken up unless certain things happen. In John 20, 20, we read, and when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord 
they had the benefit of that experience. Thomas had not had the benefit of that experience. And so he is having to weigh the testimony of others against vivid personal experience. This is what I saw. This is what they're saying. But I know what I saw. So we read in the passage, after eight days his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them and Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. Jesus accepted a challenge. This is a repeat of what happened last week. They're locked in. Jesus enters. How did he do that? I don't know. You remember when uh, Peter was walking on the water and then began to sink? And Jesus said to him, why do you doubt? And the word he uses is distazo. That's not the word that is used here of Thomas. It's apistos. Pistos is faith and a is a negator, a negative. In other words, Thomas' problem is not doubt. You know, I'm really not sure. It is unbelief. And Jesus' command, there's five of them, but the last one is a present imperative which when you use a present imperative with the negator, it basically says this process has got to stop. Stop not believing. Start believing is a command that he has given to him. Jesus' language answers perfectly to the terms of Thomas's faith test. He said, I will not believe unless A, B, C, D. And so when Jesus returns, he says, A, B, C, D, and E, stop not believing. Reach with your finger. See my hands. Reach your hand. Put it into my side. Stop being unbelieving. Now here to me is something that is quite remarkable. Jesus knew exactly what Thomas wanted and provided it. How did he know? Well, Jesus knows the heart of all men. And so when Jesus came to the room it was as if, and it's not just as if, because he hears all things. He had heard the conversation. And Thomas had said, I will not believe. I don't care what you're all telling me. I won't believe because I see in my mind what happened. And I don't know how he saw, but I see he's dead. And unless A, B, C, D, I'm not believing. And Jesus says, okay, A, B, C, D, here you go. Stop not believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. 
Now the text doesn't indicate that Thomas performed his prescribed faith test. In other words, I don't know that he said, okay, let's do number one. All right, uh, show, me, show me some nail. All right. Okay, now I want to put my hand in your side, which by the way, that's apparently the wound was something that was open, that you could put your hand into it. Well, the text doesn't say that he performed any of his prescribed faith tests. His encounter was enough. And Thomas's exclamation goes beyond anything yet heard. And it's actually the faith climax of John's gospel. If you read the first chapter, you read why John wrote the book. And it was so that we might say the same thing as Thomas, which is my God, my Lord. That's why the book was written. How the light dawned, <clears throat> I, I don't know. How did Thomas arrive at this place? Many disciples, uh, for example, in uh, John 6, had withdrawn from Jesus. And Peter made this statement. He says, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So you are the holy representative of God. That was where Peter was at in John 6. Now that's, that's good, but that's not on the order of what Thomas has said. In John 10:33, we read, the Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Now, the Jews don't get it. They don't accept it. But they are saying, you're making yourself out to be God. But they're not saying, my God, my Lord. Thomas's declaration, Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord, would constitute in their eyes blasphemy. It is a basis for you to be slain. But Thomas is absolutely convinced of the fact that Jesus is Lord. He is the supreme sovereign over heaven and earth, and he is God. He is the one who has, in every respect, the character of God. But he adds, my. Peter, uh, Thomas is, I don't know why I keep saying Peter, but anyway, if I mess up, just make the correction mentally, okay. Thomas is acknowledging the supremacy and the deity of Jesus, but he is also affirming his belief in and submission to his Lord and God. He is the Lord. He is a supreme sovereign over heaven and earth, and he is my Lord. He's the one in charge of me. He's the one I follow. He is God. He is the one who possesses the fullness of all that is true of God and he is my God and he's standing right here in front of me that is powerful there's actually an echo of Thomas words in Revelation 4:11. it says this worthy are you our Lord and our God now it's in the plural but it's the same to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. This is the, the living creatures 
And they're saying the same thing. Not just he is Lord, he is God, he is our Lord, he is our God. D.A. Carson says this about Thomas, the most unyielding skeptic has bequeathed to us the most profound confession. This is a person who's actually saying, unless I see A, B, C, D, I am not believing. And that person comes to Christ and in a moment is able to say, he is God and Lord and he is my God and he is my Lord. There is no accounting for Thomas' confession apart from convincing proof. In verse 29, Jesus said to him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Now I realize that some translations have that in, a, in the form of a question. Because you have seen me, have you believed? But he says, my Lord and my God. Um, and there's not uh, punctuation in Greek. This is a statement. Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those are they who did not see and yet believed. Jesus graciously honored Thomas's request. He provided the evidence that was requested. Thomas says, unless A, B, C, D, not believing. Jesus says, okay. Now, this is implied. I don't have his words, but okay, you got it. Here it is, A, B, C, D. And Thomas believed, powerful statement. And then Jesus makes this statement. He says, but I am not going to do that personally with everyone. There are going to be those who do not have to have me actually show up in person. And they are to be congratulated. I am reasonably confident that for all in this room or next to all, you have not had a personal encounter with the living Jesus in bodily form. I've never seen him, but I believe in him. Jesus is going to ascend into heaven and those who then believe will do so without the benefit of seeing the resurrected Lord. Now, that belief is no less real uh, in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, he says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Thomas's testimony helps me believe. Thomas's testimony of having seen the resurrected Jesus helps me believe but I have not personally seen him, but I know he is alive and that I will see him and he is my Lord and my God. Jesus gives a new beatitude. He says, blessed are you who don't see but believe. Jesus says you are to be congratulated. If you believe in Jesus Christ without him having actually done a Thomas for you, you are to be congratulated. We can benefit from Thomas's account, even though we've not yet personally seen Jesus, but we will someday. So how do I apply this message? What do I, what do, I do with this? Well, the first question is, 
Is Jesus my Lord? You can believe Jesus is God without recognizing him as my God. You can believe that Jesus is Lord without saying he is my Lord. The demons are quite cognizant that there is no one but God. And they are terrified of him. But they will not say he is my God. Uh, James 2.19, you believe that God is one. You do well, the demons also believe and shudder. So here's the question, is he your Lord? Is he your God? It is possible that you in this room, there may be some who would say, I know he's God. I know he was risen, he rose from the dead. But is he the boss of your life, the one to whom you submit? Second application, and I want to really zero in on this one, is Jesus does hurdles. <laughs> what would have happened if Jesus never appeared to Thomas? Unless Jesus does A, B, C, D, I am not, no way, no way, no how, believing. What if Jesus had never done that? Would Thomas have become a casualty like Judas? But Jesus did appear to him and provided exactly what Thomas needed to experience a belief breakthrough. Jesus' response to Thomas is proof that Jesus is willing to work with faith tests. You know how the parable of the shepherd who went and looked for the lost sheep was designed to give us insight into the heart of Father. He looks for lost sheep. This incident is designed to give us a glimpse of the heart of Jesus. He is willing to work with faith tests. He didn't say to Thomas, <laughs> Thomas, I am not gonna do anything of what you wanted. You are on your own, buddy. He came and he said, okay, A, B, C, D. Stop disbelieving. Who do you know? A friend, a coworker, a neighbor, a relative, a son or daughter who would say, I will no way know how, believe in Jesus unless or until he fill in the blank. Jesus is not put off by that. You can actually have a conversation with someone in which you ask them about their faith hurdles. I remember, uh, this is a number of years ago, but uh, I was at a different church and I would go talk to people before the service, just get acquainted. And then I would do that sometimes after. After the service, I went and talked. Here was a young woman. said, well, tell me about you. She said, well, I'm, I'm actually here from South Africa. And, uh, you know, I've, I've come to America. And I'm, well, what did you think about the sermon? She said, well, it's interesting. I said, do you know Jesus is your savior? And she said, no. She, I asked, well, why not? She said, well, I have all these questions. So I said, well, um, I'd be happy to help you with that. So I met with her for a few weeks. 
And she raised her questions about the reasonableness of our faith. And I proceeded to, well, here's the answer to that, and here's this, and here's this, and work through that. And as we would talk, then I'd say, so what's your next question? I got to a point where she said, actually, I don't have any more questions. You've shown me that there are good answers to all of my questions. I'm ready to surrender to Jesus now. And she did. Now, a number of years later, she contracted cancer and she is with the Lord now. Who do you know? A friend? A relative? A coworker? A neighbor? who would say, I am not going to believe this Jesus stuff unless. We'll find out what their hurdle is. I'm going to tell you what to do with that in just a minute. You know, that woman had someone she met who had lots of questions about Jesus. And so she said, I'd like you to talk with my friend. <laughs> and so she, she brought her friend and I met with him and we had a similar con kind of conversation. And he would say, well, what about this and this and this? And I would say, well, here's, here's an answer to that. Well, what about this? Here's an answer to that. It seemed like every time I'd give him an answer, he wasn't going, okay, I get that. It was on to the next question. So then I asked him a question. I said, let me ask you this. Even if I was to answer all your questions, would you surrender to Jesus? And he said, no. And I said, well, then your problem is not answers to the questions. Your problem is a surrender problem. You don't need more data. You're not ready to say, my Lord, no matter what I tell you. So who do you know who is your Thomas? Someone that God has put in your life who would say, I am not going to surrender. I am not going all in with Jesus unless. You can actually start praying for an Operation Thomas with your unbelieving friend. Uh, Thomas had to make a choice. Jesus presented the data, but then he said, stop being unbelieving and believe. Your Thomas will have to make a choice. But you can start praying for God to provide just what they need because what happened with Thomas is not a one-off. For example, a man from Ethiopia said, I can't make sense of Isaiah 53 on my own. How can I understand this unless someone talks to me? And the Holy Spirit directed Philip to intercept his chariot as he was riding from Jerusalem, presumably back to Ethiopia. And he stepped into his chariot and he provided just what the man needed for spiritual breakthrough. And that man got baptized right on the spot. That's because God loves to take on the hurdles of a Thomas. A man in Caesarea didn't know what he was missing. He was seeking God, but he was saying, you know, is there something more? And God sent an angel who came to this man and told him, 
yes, there's more you need to know, and I have someone who could tell you about it. Send for this man, and he will help you. And so they sent for Peter, and Peter came, shared the gospel, shared about Jesus. He and his whole household believed and were baptized and received the Holy Spirit. Jesus loves giving to Thomases what they lack so that they can believe. Who's your Thomas? Who's the person that you know who would say, he is not my Lord and I will not believe unless he does A, B, C. I'm here to report that Jesus, that Father, that the Spirit are willing to minister to your Thomas. So here's my question. Will you pray for your Thomas and for God to supply exactly what your Thomas needs to come to Jesus and believe? I'm going to show you an example of some things. Now, this, uh, I have different ways that I pray during the week. I use this deck of cards uh, several days a week. And I'm going to show you a, a couple cards that are Thomas cards in here, all right? So here's the first one. I can tell you more about this because I'm reasonably confident you won't make the connection. But uh, apparently, based on the date on this, this was in August, on August 22 in 2011. So this is 11 years ago, almost 12 years ago. I was speaking to a group in India. And uh, before the, the talk, uh, someone came up to me and handed me a baby, a newborn. This baby was maybe five or six days old. I looked at my translator and I said, I'm, I'm not familiar with the pre-sermon baby principle. What is, the, what is that about? And he said, they want you to name their son. Oh, wow. And I, I'm amongst a group where I don't speak their language. Uh, this was a Banjara group of people and this is a little Banjara baby. And uh, I talked with my translator about what uh, would work in their phonetics, and we came up with the name David. And so um, on that day, I, I named David Nyack. And I said to them, and I will pray for the rest of my days for David. Now his name, David, uh, would be the Hebrew, means beloved. And so here's what I've been praying for him. And I've, so far, I have been faithful to this. Not every day, but on the days when I use this deck, uh, I'm praying for him. And I'm saying, Father, would you please open his eyes to the knowledge that he is beloved by God? Because that's his name, beloved. Would you help him to see that he is loved by you? And then would you open his heart to return that love and love you back? Now, I am planning on meeting David Nyack in heaven. Um, I don't have any delusions that I will meet him again here on earth, but I'm praying for him, and I'm praying a Thomas prayer. Supply what is needed for him to see. Uh, this is a fairly new card, so I'm not going to get into details. I don't want to connect, but uh, this is someone uh, I am praying for a person on this card and this is one of the verses. I like using scripture for prayer. Um, Perhaps God may grant him repentance 
leading to the knowledge of the truth and that he may come to his senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will so that's what I'm praying for this person that God will provide an eye-opening moment and that this person will see where their life is going and see where it needs to go so here's my question for you who is your Nathan I mean, again, I don't know why I keep messing up. Who, who is your Thomas? <laughs> Who's Nathan? I don't know. Where did, where did Nathan come from? <laughs> Hopefully, if there's a Nathan here, I'm not focusing on you. Who is your Thomas? Who is someone that you can start praying for? Now, in the pews in front of you, there's a connect card. I would love for you, if someone has already come to mind, that you would say, I know who that person is. I'd like you to take that card out, and I'd like you to either write the name of that person or something that would be descriptive of that person, because in a minute, when we close the service, I want to do something with those cards. But my plea is for you to take that card and to ask God and to ask Jesus to do for the person on your card, what he did for Thomas. And that is to supply what was just exactly what that person need to be able to say, my Lord, my God. All right, I'll let you complete that card with whatever needs to go on there. And second piece of assignment, you can fill in some information would you be willing to give that card to someone and say, would you please pray for my Thomas? I don't know who that is. Could be one of the shepherding elders. Uh, could be a friend you know, prayer group, whatever. But would you be willing to give a card to someone else and say, would you please pray for my Thomas? And you can put whatever details you feel comfortable putting down on that card. All right? I'm going to pray for us. Father, we are thank you for Thomas. We are thankful for the ways in which he pled for evidence and you provided it, you brought it. That shows us who you are. You don't just brush aside our concerns and our objections. Father, there are those with whom we have contact who have objections. Father, we're pleading with you that you would supply what is needed for them to then be free to say, my Lord, my God. We want to see what makes you look good and what makes us say, God did this. And what he did for my Thomas was no different, nothing less than what he did, Jesus did for Thomas. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.